coming in, I'll uh, review the announcements. The next men's prayer breakfast and deacons meeting will be on Saturday, February 17th at 7.30 a.m. Now, last month we had um, a inter- very interesting speaker. If you weren't here, which means all the ladies weren't here, you can watch that. It's up on the website. At the next meeting, at this one on February the 17th, our speaker is going to be uh, Kathleen Wall, who is also running for that same slot. I had an hour and a half one-on-one meeting with her this morning. And one of the first things that impressed me was she said, Oh, I have an assistant here whose pastor is a good friend of yours. And so she introduced me to Sue, and Sue said, yeah, I go to Sugarland Bible Church. And she said, I started going there after two years of listening to uh, Andy on the Internet. I started going there uh, about six months ago. But the way she got hooked up on listening to uh, Andy at, at Sugarland Bible Church was she heard our conference speaker for the Chafer Conference, Sharam Hadian, at that conference that they had there two and a half years ago, which tells me that uh, Kathleen Wall has somebody who is very close to her who understands the genuine evil of Islam. That is a real positive. There are a lot of other things I thought were positive. So I didn't get a chance to ask her all the detailed questions. I wanted to go and find out basically you know, things about her, who she was, things of that nature. I was really pleased when I said, if you were to die in five minutes, how do you know you'd go to heaven? And she said, when I was six years old, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I thought that was about as concise as better than any Baptist I've ever heard. She's a member of Second Baptist. She nailed it. None of this, I invite Jesus into my life or into my heart. So I was pleased on those points. So uh, she needs to be asked the tough questions, though, and that's why uh, she's going to be here on on Saturday, February the 17th. Also, the Chafer Conference is coming up, and we need to plan for uh, sign-up on the sign-up sheets for drivers, for people helping in the kitchen, all the different things that we need, and... um, and that. So also the details are coming together. We sent out a sheet today on the Museum of the Bible. One thing I need to, I got a question on that I need to check on is the cost for children. And so I'll be calling tomorrow to check on that. But it's really a great deal for $12 to go in for three days and then they're throwing in several other things. So it's, uh, it's really a great deal. So, and the Israel trip is coming together. Uh, Yorm Edinger is going to come over and speak to us one night and give us a, a, about an hour lecture on what's going on in Israel today and what the issues are. So that will be good. And then we will also have some other special events. And I'll let you know as time goes by. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. After a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in right relationship with the Lord, enjoying your 
a fellowship with God. We will have a, after a few moments of prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we have this time to fellowship together around your word and that we have fellowship with you, positional fellowship for eternity and experiential fellowship because we have adjusted to your righteousness through confession of sin. Father, we thank you for all that you provide for us and the grace is beyond anything that we can comprehend or fully grasp, and your goodness to us is all because of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, Father, as we go back into the Old Testament, look at this, what may seem a rather odd episode in the third chapter of Second Samuel. We pray that you'd help us to understand these things and be encouraged and strengthened as we, too, look out on a cultural horizon that is every bit as chaotic and seemingly out of control as a situation at that time. And Father, we know that you are, though, in control. We're thankful for that, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What we're going to look at in Second Samuel chapter 3 is God's blessing on David. Now, David gets this blessing not because he earned it or deserved it, but because God, in his grace, chose David in terms of his plan. And that had some, has some very interesting background and some very interesting ramifications. Now, as we look at these events, if you're reading through your Bible, as you should be, enjoying learning about God as you read through your Bible daily, you read chapters like chapter 2 and chapter 3 where you just wonder, why is this here? What is going on here? Three chapters basically devoted to the battle that occurred uh, here at Gibeon. On the screen you see this, and the battles that occurred as uh, Abner, who is the general for Israel, who's really the manipulator behind the scenes, trying to uh, maintain power in the house of Saul in the north. And that's because he's part of the house of Saul. Remember, he's a cousin His father is Ner. Ner was Saul's uncle, so he's in that royal family, and he wants to maintain the the power. But but there is an heir apparent in one son of Saul's that was left alive, and that was Ishbosheth, and so he's going to be working. Now, he has an agenda like most people who are in human viewpoint, and that is always me first. And even though he is uh, the one who elevates Ishbosheth to the kingship, in the north, it will see here he's manipulating everything so that he's the one who would inevitably end up with the power because Ishbosheth is is weak. He's not a strong leader, and he knows he won't last. So he's real. It's really all about all about Abner, and there's this battle uh, that takes place between the twelve men of Joab that from Ju- from uh, David's side. And the twelve men of uh, up from the north, and as I pointed out last time, it starts off as a friendly competition, as it were, an athletic competition, but it quickly turns into uh, a murderous scene where the athletes, the men on each side, the champions on each side, get mad and they kill each other, so that there are now twenty-four dead champions there, and then the 
rest of the army goes into this melee, and Abner decides that he needs to run for it, and he's going to head back to Mahanaim, but he is chased by Joab's youngest brother, uh, Azahel. And Azahel is going to, he's going to keep single-mindedly, doggedly on Abner's track. Abner tries to just stop him by poking him with his spear, but the spear goes through him. It uh, penetrates his abdomen all the way through him, and Azahel dies. Now, this sets up a system of sinful reactions because what happens is that Joab uh, is going to get involved now in revenge. I went through revenge and revenge motivation last week, the desire to take law into his own hands and to uh, <clears throat> take uh, and to get revenge on, on, uh, on Abner. And so he and Abishai are going to be involved in going after uh, Abner. And Abner goes back home to Mahanaim where they can regather their forces. And Joab's going to go back to Hebron. And as we uh, end the, um, the second chapter, we read in verse 32, Then they took up Azahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went at night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Now, remember, Bethlehem is David's hometown. Now, their mother, the mother of Abishai, um, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel is Zariah, who is David's oldest sister. So this is a real family affair. Hebron is the capital of Judah and is the location of the tomb of the patriarchs. I've got a video to show you. Uh, before we go to, uh, too much further into this, it's going to bring the significance of this together uh, a little better. What we've seen is this problem with the sin nature. And everything that takes place in chapter 3 is ultimately taking place in the north, and the main characters are all in the family of Saul. The family of Saul is in carnality. So what we see, it foreshadows the future of Israel, that's all, the northern kingdom that's always going to be in idolatry and rebellion against God. But what we see here in this, in this episode is how carnality, when you divorce yourself from God in any endeavor in life, it is always going to end up with a tremendous number of unintended bad consequences. And that's what happens uh, here. So it's a picture for us of what happens when the sin nature controls and God is ignored. So we have the, uh, the power lust manifested by, um, by Abner in the north. Uh, the approbation lust always goes along with that. And then that is going to trigger revenge and revenge motivation on the part of Joab and Abishai after Azahel is killed. And this is just a reflection of what happens in the arrogant skills when they're in control. Starts with self-absorption. Another way you can talk about that is just self-love. Self-absorption leads to self-indulgence. You continue to indulge yourself, then that leads to self-justification. You're always trying to make, your, make it known that you're right. That leads to self-deception. Self-deception gets magnified to where you really can't see the truth anymore. Then you, that leads to self-deification. This is just an ongoing, ongoing cycle. And what we see here is, I thought I'd change this next slide, but I didn't. Um, 
What the Bible teaches, not about the angelic rebellion, but what the Bible teaches about the sovereignty of God. Okay, what the Bible teaches about the sovereignty of God. So we have to review the essence box. The essence box, we have 10 key attributes that are emphasized in the scripture that tell us about God. And the first one that we emphasize is God's sovereignty. Now, there's an abuse of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God that basically borders on fatalism. And this is the idea that God controls everything, including who is saved, who isn't saved, and in God selects or elects those who will be saved, and he gives them saving faith. This is not what the scripture teaches. These are systems that, of, of theology that have been heavily influenced by uh, human philosophy. And so we need to understand what is going on with sovereignty because we see it in this chapter. God's sovereign will is accomplished. What is God's sovereign will? that David be elevated to the throne of the United Kingdom. Yet in the midst of all of this, we see the absolute chaos that comes because of individual volitional choices, because of the free will decisions, wrong decisions of Abner and of Joab. But what we see ultimately is despite the failures of human beings and all of the chaos and disruption that occurs, God's working behind the scenes to bring about his purpose, which he accomplishes, because man's decisions can't override God's sovereignty. But God in his sovereignty isn't going to override human decisions. He's going to work with them to always accomplish his end. That's Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good. doesn't say all things are good, it says God is working all things together for good. And so we'll start with our definition. The definition is that the sovereignty of God refers to God's authoritative rule over his creation and his creatures. He is the ultimate ruler of the universe. And he is demonstrating through in, in and through the angelic conflict that he's the only one that has the knowledge, the power, and the presence. Okay, what attributes did I just refer to? The power, the knowledge, and the presence. His omnipotence, uh, omniscience, his omnipotence, and his omnipresence. He's got the knowledge, the power, and the presence. He is all-knowing. So there's no little detail that he's unaware of. He controls all the knowledge. No creature can do that. So no creature can control enough things to control history. Only God can do that. He is all-powerful, which means he has the capability to bring about his purposes when he desires to, the way he desires to. And he is so powerful, and his knowledge is so absolute and extensive that he is able to bring about his will without compromising the will of his creatures. Now, to me, in this whole debate that goes on between Calvinists and Arminians, the idea that God is so powerful and so knowledgeable that he can bring about his will without compromising the volition of creatures 
is a much more impressive God than a God who must determine the decisions and the outcomes of his creatures. I think that the God that we think about that is not the sovereign dictator of the universe is a much more powerful deity than the God of the Calvinists. So the sovereignty of God refers to his overall rule over his creation, his creatures, and that his sovereign will is expressed through his plan, which includes two things, his permissive will, that which he allows to take place. He doesn't allow us to to do whatever we want to. You may have noticed that. You have free will, but whether it's to exercise it for good or for ill, God doesn't allow you to to actually follow through on your decisions. Some of you, you say, well, if I had X number of dollars, I would give them to the church. I'm going to go buy a lottery ticket. But that doesn't work because God doesn't want you to have that kind of money for whatever reason to give it to the church or to give it to this ministry or that ministry or whatever whatever ministry it might be. So he's not going to permit you to do whatever it is you want to do. But he will allow you to do some things you want to do, and some of those things are bad, and that's going to bring negative consequences into your life, and some of them are good, and they're going to bring positive consequences into your life. And then there's his decreed will or his revealed will. That's what he wants to take place. That's, uh, his revealed will is that which he has revealed, and that's the only thing we can know for sure is what God has revealed to us. Second, God's sovereign will has determined that human beings exercise their own volition within certain boundaries. We are not autonomous. We can't just do whatever we want to do, as I said on the first point. But we can exercise our volitional responsibility, the first divine institution, within certain boundaries. But there are some things that you just God's not going to allow you to do for whatever reason. He was not going to allow the Jews to just kill Jesus by stoning. They could have wanted to, but he wasn't going to allow that. He was going to, he narrowed their options. But he's not the one who made the decision. They made the decision. And they're responsible for that decision. So God can override and will override certain human decisions. Now the third point, and and we see an example of that here. Because Abner wants to rule in the north, but God's going to over, overrule that. Uh, he wants to manipulate things, so he comes out on top as the king in the north. Uh, Joab in the south has his ideas, and all this chaos ensues as a result of their power struggle with each other. And God blesses David, and God accomplishes his will, and David becomes the king. Third point... God's sovereign will is such that he has built into the framework of his plan for history the flexibility to handle whatever chaos results from human volition. What I mean by that, if you think about what happened in the Garden of Eden, think about this. When Adam sinned, that judgment on his sin didn't just affect Adam didn't just affect the human race. It affected the, the biological structure. The, let's redefine that, the botanical structure on the planet so that now thorns and thistles were going to come out 
that weren't going to be there before. So botany changed. I think certain things biologically occurred to animals so that uh, many of the animals were herbivores before the fall. They became omnivores or they became carnivores after after the fall. So there were changes in their, perhaps in their uh, gastrointestinal system, perhaps in their dental structure, things of that nature. But all of God had built that flexibility into all of their DNA so that it handled the corruption from sin. In the same way, when we make decision A, B, or C, which are just terrible and going to have horrible consequences, God is able to handle the chaos brought by that within his plan so that it doesn't disrupt his plan. God can do that because he's omniscient and he's omnipotent. And because he's omnipresent, which I brought in, he's present to everything. You can't do something that he's not aware of, as Psalm 139 talks about. You can't go uh, here or there and escape uh, the presence of God. So he's able to handle whatever chaos our bad decisions bring to our lives and still work out his divine purposes because ultimately they're not dependent on human volition. Fourth, God's sovereign will does not infringe on human volition on critical issues such as man's response to general or special revelation. God is not determining how different people respond to um, to the general revelation of the heavens declaring the glory of God and the firmament showing his handiwork, or how they respond to the gospel. However, the consequences of many human decisions and the ability to carry out those decisions are ultimately in God's hands. Neither Abner nor Joab could change the fact that God was going to bring David to the throne. They might affect details and circumstances but ultimately, God was going to bring David to the throne. He was going to bring David to the throne as a fulfillment of a promise in Genesis, a prophecy in Genesis 49 to Judah that the scepter would not depart from the lion of Judah, the tribe of Judah. And so David is from that tribe and that lineage. And he knows that his descendants are going to be royalty because of Genesis uh, chapter 49. And so God's going to bring that about. In Psalm 35, 135, 5 through 7, we read, For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods, all the idols. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. That sovereignty. God does what he wants to do. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in deep places. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. God is in control of the climate. Isn't that interesting? Climate is not going to be changed by mankind. No such thing as man-caused or anthropogenic global warming. God is in control. What happens in God's creation, for example, in volcanoes, that one volcano 
can put more CO2 and more garbage chemicals into the atmosphere than all of the machines and all of the engines that man has devised since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And there's nothing that we can do to change that. We don't matter in terms of that. God has also built into the fabric of the, uh, of the, the atmosphere chemicals and processes that cleanse. Same thing in the ocean that provide cleansing and purification. So God's in control. When we apply that to Israel under point five, God's plan for Israel is one that ultimately will not be thwarted. But in the meantime, there will be many rebellious decisions on the part of the northern kingdom, southern kingdom, many Israelites, and many attempts by Satan through human agents to destroy Israel. But God will bring about his plan and his purpose. So, that's the backdrop. That is the spiritual lesson that we should learn and be thinking about as we watch the chaos unfold in Second Samuel uh, chapter three and on into on into chapter four. Now, in verse one, we read: Now there was a long war. See the result of this battle at Gibeon, the battle of the sharp swords, the twelve men from each side. And their and their uh, killing of each other explodes into a massive civil war between the tribes, between the north and the south, between the house of Saul and the house of David. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Why? Because David was a better leader, not necessarily but because God was blessing him. This is like a topical sentence that is going to be uh, developed in the coming episode. This is what happens. God is going to accomplish his purpose. The house of Saul is going to grow weaker. God's going to allow their uh, negative volition and their lust patterns to destroy themselves. And God is going to also work behind the scenes to bring victory to David so that he will be recognized and accepted by all of the tribes as the king of the north and the king of the south. So that that is the focal point here. Now, when we get to um, verse, verses 2 through 5, which is coming up right here, we get a description of how God blesses David in his family. Now, this is interesting because David is disobedient to the Lord. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, which we'll look at on this slide, the king is given the instructions, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. But the first part of the verse is what we're focusing on. The king was not to get involved in polygamy. Why? Well, there's several reasons. One is that God's intent was one man and one woman united in marriage, not a man and a man, not a man and a boy, not a, a woman and a girl, not a woman and a woman, or a man and multiple women, or a woman and multiple men, but one man, one woman, united together for life. That's marriage. God instituted marriage. That's not something that 
that man came up with as a uh, as a convenience uh, in order to somehow uh, help raise families. This is not an option. This is the only thing that works within a culture. It's divine institution uh, number two. And as an institution, we're not talking about something like a convention. A convention is like what happens in on the highways in England and Australia and maybe a few other Commonwealth countries. You go to England and Australia, they drive on the other side of the road. They drive on the left. We drive on the right. There's no absolute about that. It doesn't matter whether you drive on the right or drive on the left. That's not going to affect anything unless you happen to be coming from America and you forget and you drive on the wrong side and have a wreck. But an institution is something that God establishes in his creation that's a social law. It's like the law of gravity. If you violate it, it's going to have horrible repercussions. The difference is if you violate the law of gravity, the repercussions come pretty quickly. But when you violate social laws, those repercussions may not come for a decade or two or three decades or a couple of generations, but then the culture implodes. That's why they're called divine institutions. God instituted these as part of the warp and woof of, of uh, human culture. So <clears throat> polygamy was forbidden by God. The problem is that this had already taken hold in the pagan post-Noahic culture. And so there was this imitation of the world among the believers. Every now and then you'll have somebody come out and say, well, God doesn't really prohibit, uh, universally prohibit uh, polygamy in the Old Testament. In fact, he regulates it in the, in the Old Testament. Well, in the Mosaic Law. Well, one of the reasons he regulates it in the Old Testament is because it was such an, an accepted practice that there had the, the regulations all have to do with providing grace and blessing to the second and third wives so that they're not taken advantage of. The regulations are designed to protect the extra women. They're not to authorize and support the practice of polygamy. And when you look at Scripture, actually, there wasn't that much polygamous activity. Abraham was not a polygamist. He married Sarah. He did not marry Hagar. She was a concubine. That was a totally different circumstance, and that was a, had a legal uh, significance that a slave could become a concubine if the wife was infertile, then the concubine could have children to raise up and for, the, for, the, uh, for the man. It was a legal position, but it was taken advantage of as everything is under the sin nature. So you had Abraham, he's not a polygamist. You have Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah. There's no polygamy there. I've heard people say, well, all the patriarchs were polygamists. No, they weren't. You had Jacob, who is lied to and deceived by his father-in-law Laban, and he switches women on him. And he, he wants to marry Rachel, the love of his life, and he gets Leah slipped in on him on his wedding night. So he goes and he marries Rachel anyway. 
So he has a second wife. He had two concubines as well. Now, when you get into later on, it's primarily the kings who are multiplying wives as part of their foreign policy. I'm going to seal a treaty deal with my neighbor king, and I'm going to either marry his daughter or my son is going to marry his daughter. And so what you're doing is you're trusting in foreign as George Washington put it, foreign entanglements, foreign alliances that you're working at rather than trusting God. And that's why God prohibited this. Marry your wife and stay true to your wife, and I'll take care of the foreign issues, and I'll protect Israel because that's part of my covenant. So this is, this is the background here. And what we see in, um, in these verses, where did I? Where'd they go? In verses 2 through 5 is a report on his children. His firstborn is Amnon. Uh, We're going to have some problems that Amnon's going to have later on. And he's from his David's wife, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. Then the second is Kiliab, who is the son of Abigail, who was the widow of Nabal, uh, the Carmelite. Third son is Absalom the son of Maka, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. So that's a treaty deal to marry, that, marry uh, the daughter of, a, of another king. The fourth is Adonijah, the son of Hagith. Now, Adonijah is going to show up later in our lesson, if I have time tonight, because Adonijah tries to make a grab for the throne away from Solomon uh, in the beginning of uh, 1 Kings and 1 Kings two, 1 and 2. And in 2 Samuel 3, 5, the 6 is Ethrim, who's uh, by David's wife, Eglah. Now, God isn't validating David's polygamy here. He's simply reporting this is what he did. It's prohibited in Deuteronomy 17, 17a. God's not saying, well, it's really okay. But no, he's just reporting this is what he did. He married these wives and he had these children. But God is blessing his family. Having children fulfills what? The Noahic covenant. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it's not the way God intended, but God is not lowering the boom on polygamy as clearly in the Old Testament as he did in the New Testament. But he never shows that it was a good deal. It was always reported as a problem. So... Verse 6 picks up from the end of chapter 2, verse 32. Now it was so while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. So Abner, really this word strengthening is an interesting word. I didn't put it up here. It's the Hebrew word chazak. It's in the hithpael, which is the causative uh, stem. So he, um, reflexive stem, rather. He's strengthening himself. And because it is a participle, it has the idea of continuous action. It has a a progressive sense. So he's continuing to do this. Remember, in our chronology, there's five and a half years between the death of Saul and the time Ishbosheth becomes king. That during that time the north is in a mess, the Philistines are in control, and it's absolute chaos in the north. It looks like the only stability is in the south, in in, in Judah under David, and the north is just falling apart. 
So Abner is strengthening himself, and the idea that is communicated here is that he's working behind the scenes to manipulate the situation to eventually become king himself. And we're going to see this in this first episode, something that this first episode is really hard for us to understand. It is radically different from anything we've ever understood or experienced in our culture. And what he is going to do is manipulate the system in order to put himself in a position to make a power grab for the throne. This is how autonomous man tries to solve his problems. Rather than trusting in God and seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness and then God adding all these things to him, instead of trusting in the Lord with all your heart and not leaning on your own understanding, you're rejecting God, leaning on your own understanding and trying to bring about the blessing uh, for yourself. It's pure human works. It's the works of the flesh. And this is typical in the North, especially typical of Saul's, uh, Saul's family. So how is he going to strengthen himself in this way? Well, then we get introduced to this episode in verse 7. Saul had a concubine. <clears throat> and part of the role of a concubine was to have children that if necessary, could ascend to the throne. So he's got a concubine whose name is Rizpah, and she's the, identified as the daughter of Aya. And so Ishbosheth says to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now, going into his father's concubine is a euphemism for having sexual relations with his father's concubine. Now, this woman is not Ishbosheth's mother, and so the question would be, why is he so upset over this? And the reason is that in that culture, if you had sexual relations with the king's wives or concubine, you weren't just doing this for carnal pleasure. You're doing this because you're making a claim to the throne. Now, let's look at a couple of examples of this. I want you to uh, turn to chapter 16 in Second Samuel, chapter 16, verse 20. 16, verse 20. And down here we get into the middle of the Absalom rebellion. Absalom leads a revolt against David. David has to flee across the Jordan uh, to escape uh, <clears throat> Absalom's army. And so starting in verse 15, we get a little background. Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. Now, Ahithophel was one of David's closest advisors. And so it was when Hushai the archai, David's friend, came to Absalom, he's sort of acting as an undercover, uh, deep state influence type of individual to upset the uh, whatever Absalom is trying to do. <clears throat> David's uh, friend Hushai comes to Absalom and says, long live the king, long live the king. So Absalom says to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Are you really betraying um, David? Uh, why didn't you go with him? And Hushai says, no, but whom the Lord and his people, blah, blah, blah. And it goes on for a couple of verses, and he convinces Absalom he's going to be loyal to him. In verse 20, 
Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give advice as to what I should do. Okay, what's my next move? You are my father's counselor. You're my counselor. What do I do next to consolidate my power? And so Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Uh, Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. In other words, you'll solidify your position You take his concubines as yours, and you've taken over. You become the obvious king. So they pitched a tent. This is just so bizarre. They pitched a tent for Absalom on top of the palace. So everybody knows what's happening. And each night he takes a different concubine to bed, and he's making a claim to the throne. He's now the king. See, I I have control of all the concubines. So... This was, the, this was the advice that was given. Now, there's another example of this that takes place in 1 Kings chapter 2. So let's turn over there. This is, involves the king's household. And in 1 Kings chapter 2, we have um, the rebellion of Adonijah. He's already made a play to be king, and then David says, no, Solomon's going to be king, and Adonijah acts like he's going to go along with that, and then he decides to make a secret, sort of a backdoor uh, appeal to get the kingship. And so in verse 13 of 1 Kings 2, we read, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, are you peaceable? In other words, are you, are you going to try to cause trouble? And he says, no, I'm, I'm peaceable, but he's lying. Moreover, he said, I have something to say to you. She said, okay, say it. And he said, you know that the kingdom was mine, and all Israel had set their expectations on me that I should reign, because he had tried to take over and, and run a coup against Solomon. But it's been turned over and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. Now, I ask one petition of you. Don't deny me. And so she promises that she won't deny him. So now she's entered into this contractual agreement, it appears. And he says, Speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as wife. Now, Abishag was a young woman that was hired to sleep with David for body warmth as he is dying and he can't stay warm and he's going into hypothermia, she would sleep with him to give, keep him warmth. There's nothing that was sexual that was going on, but that's obviously an intimate relationship. And so he's trying to slip this deal in there where he's going to get, Ab- uh, he's going to get um, Abish- Abishag and become his wife, and he's really making a play for the kingdom. And Solomon understands this. So if we slip down to verse 22, when uh, Bathsheba comes to Solomon to put forth this, this deal, Solomon says, Now why are you asking Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also. He understands the connection, for he's my older brother, for him and for Abiathar, the priest, and for Joab, the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, May God do so to me, and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. In other words, he says, This is treason. I recognize this is treason, and it's going to cost Adonijah his life. 
And he says, now therefore, in verse 24, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has established a house for me as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. He understood that Adonijah's request to take Abishag as his wife was a play for the throne. Now, we just don't have anything to compare that with, but that was their custom at the time. So this is why uh, when Abner uh, takes the concubine of Saul, he's making a play for the kingship against Ishbosheth, and this is why Ishbosheth is so upset. He knows that that he's being played by by Abner. So in verse eight, then Abner is not going to get his way, and so when people don't get their way, they get angry. He wants the throne. That's been his play. He's been working and manipulating to set this up all along, and Ishbosheth is just a, a, a weak king and so he thinks he's got this and now he's being kicked out so he gets angry and what's God going to do? God's going to use his sin to turn him away from loyalty to the house of Saul to turn the kingdom over to David and so this is what happens. He, he, he takes this as an insult from Ishbosheth, and he says, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, his brothers, and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? He just turns it. He's saying, I'm not at fault. You're the one at fault. When he's actually the one at fault. It just sounds like a lot of politicians who accuse the other side of doing exactly what they're doing. And that's what, what Abner does. And so he goes on to say, may God do so to Abner and more also. And this was a typical type of an oath that if, if this is really what I'm doing, may God bring all of this on me uh, if I don't do as to, for David as the Lord has sworn to him. Now notice that. What's he saying there? He's saying that he knows, and he's always known, that God made a promise to give the kingdom to David. And he's been trying to thwart God's purposes all through this this episode. He's been trying to become the king himself because he's like a lot of unbelievers who don't think that God really can bring about his will or that God's will really is the best thing. And so he's been trying to manipulate it for his own end, and now he's frustrated. He's taking his anger out on Ishbosheth, and so he is going to shift loyalties to David. So he says, May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David, as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel in the north and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Now what he's thinking is, I'm going to be the kingmaker. He still hasn't gotten the point that God's the kingmaker. And no matter what he does, he's not making the kingship. And so he's not going to survive this episode. God's not going to allow Abner to live. And God's going to use the carnality of Joab to end uh, Abner's life so that Abner can't say at the end, well, see, I gave the kingdom to David. So he's going to transfer the kingdom. Notice that the kingdom is identified as being from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is located in the north. 
Beersheba is located in the south at the northern tip of the Negev, the desert there. And this is a typical general description of the promised land that God gave Israel. It's not a technical, like nothing south of Beersheba, nothing north of Dan belonged, but these were the extreme limits of what was settled at the time. What's interesting is when you fast forward about 3,000 years to the end of World War I, and you have the meeting of the four principal powers of the, uh, of the Allied powers uh, coming together at San Remo to decide who's going to get what real estate when the Ottoman Empire breaks up. And so you have um, David Lloyd George on the one hand, who's the Prime Minister of England, and you have, I think it's Clemenceau, I may be mistaken, who's the representative for France, and uh, David Ben-Gurion says, this land belongs to the Jews. And the representative from France says, well, what land? What are the boundaries? Well, um, David Lloyd George is brought up on the Bible. He's used to the biblical maps that he's read in his Bible. And one of the most predominant, prominent books at that time was a book written in the late 1800s called A Historical Geography of the Old Testament by George Adam Smith. And so what, what um, he does, because he looks at these maps, and he says, from Dan to Beersheba, that's what we're giving the Jews, from Dan to Beersheba. His framework is totally in the Scripture. And that land was identified as that it was supposed to be the national homeland for the Jewish people, and it was agreed upon by um, 55 nations in the League of Nations, voted on and approved as part of that, because that language was all incorporated in the British mandate and became international law, and subsequently by the late 30s was just ignored. It was never fulfilled, and that um, was never enforced. And it's still there. It's still part of international law and needs to be needs to be enforced. So what happens is Abner sends his messengers. He's got his envoys, and he sends these messengers, starting in verse 12, to David. And he says uh, he's going to enter into a deal. He says, uh, whose is the land? Don't we still have that same question today? To whom does the land belong? And he says to David, make your covenant with me. Let's enter into a treaty, a contract, and my hand will, shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. See, in human viewpoint, we think the politicians are going to solve the problem. And it's God who's going to enact his will. It's not the politicians. And David says, okay, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you. Now, here we have David being very strategic in his response because he's going to make sure that he's got the, in terms of their culture, he's got the evidence that he has a right to the throne. So he wants his first wife back, who is Michal, the daughter of Saul. So she's the first daughter in a monarchy. And David is going to go back to that marriage in order to be able to make a legal claim that would stand in the eyes of some people 
that he has a right to that throne because he was married to Saul's daughter. And David's just playing this. He is using all these cultural um, aspects to reinforce what he knows God is, is working out. So this is really a rather humor, humorous episode because he's getting back at Michal and the house of Saul for the way they treated him because she, Saul took her, her away from him and gave him to somebody else. In verse 14, David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, and said, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself, for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband. So he's going to break up that marriage, which appears to be some love for Pal, from Paltiel to uh, Michal. Then, and her, he follows her all the way from Mahanaim, or Gibeon maybe, all the way down to Hebron, and he's weeping the whole way because he doesn't want to lose his wife. He's got a happy home. And he's weeping, and Abner tells him, go home. And so he went home. Now, Abner then, now that this deal is sealed, is going to come to the elders of Israel, uh, which by this I think he really means in, in Judah, but because uh, not just the northern kingdom, although it could. And he says it could mean that. In time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. Okay, so it probably he gave he went back to the northern kingdom to the ten tribes, and he's telling those elders, go ahead, let's seal the deal. We're going to make David king over the whole nation. For the Lord has spoken of David. So once again, he affirms this is God's plan. God has revealed this to David. And God has spoken of David, uh, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. So he says he, he's turned sides now. He said, David is God's anointed, and we need to make him the king. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of, of Benjamin. So everybody's united now, and Abner could pat himself on the back and think, I'm the kingmaker, I've done this. Well, we read in verse 20, uh, so Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. So they have this big celebration, and then Abner says to David, I'll rise and go and gather all Israel to the Lord my king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Look at the next verse. How does it start? Abner is going to leave Hebron and he's going to go to the north to seal the deal and unite the tribes. But at that moment... You think this is just coincidence? You think, oh, it just happened. Now, if Joab had been an hour earlier or an hour later, it would have turned out completely different. God is in control. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid, and they had a lot of spoil or plunder with them. Uh, but Abner wasn't with David in heaven, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. And when Joab and the troop that were with him had come, they told Joab that Abner the son of Ner was just here, came to the king, and he sent him away, and he went in peace. And now Joab is, he's ready for revenge. He says, what have you done? 
Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he's already gone? So he's mad at David for letting him go. Surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. See, you can't trust Abner. He begins to slander him and malign him. And so then he leaves David's presence, and he sends messengers after Abner, who hasn't gone very far. So he's able to get him to come back. He's just outside of Hebron, and he's doing this without David's knowledge. So that when David returned to Hebron, now let me pause here. Hebron is a city of refuge. If you are guilty of manslaughter, killing somebody by accident, which is what had happened, then you're supposed to go within the walls of the city of refuge. The family cannot take revenge on you. So Joab is violating the law here for the city of refuge, and he's going to kill Abner in the city of refuge and take his revenge. And this just shows how the carnality just works out in all these unintended horrible consequences. So when Abner returned to Hebron, uh, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there, what did he do? He stabbed him in the stomach. How did Azahel die? Because Abner had hit him with the butt of his spear, and it went all the way through his stomach. See, payback is identical. He's going to stab uh, Abner and kill Abner the same way he killed Azahel. And so we're told he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. Now, afterward, David hears about this, and David is truly heartbreaking. He knows that this is wrong. He knows it's unrighteous. He knows Joab has violated the law, and this, and he's manipulating the circumstances, and this really, really upsets David. And he makes it clear to everyone that he is guiltless. He says, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner the son of Nair. This is my, isn't my doing. I had nothing to do with this. And he says, This is all... Joab's fault. He has responsibility. It's on his head, the head of his father's house. Let the, and then he has a, a curse. He says, let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper or who is lame, leans on his staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. They're going to be poor. They're going to be sick. They're going to be uh, uh, various. They're going to be lepers. May someone in Joab said, may they never be blessed by the Lord. And so the conclusion, verse 30, So Joab and Abishai's brother killed Abner because he had killed their brother Azahel at Gibeon in the battle. Then David is going to have national mourning. He tells Joab to tell the people. This is the last thing Joab wants to do. He's rejoicing, and now he has to tell all the people. He said, tear your clothes, gird yourself with sackcloth, mourn for Abner, and then David follows the coffin in the street. It is a public display of grief. And they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. Verse 37, For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent, that is David's intent, to kill Abner the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day? So he's being very gracious to Abner. Abner was Saul's 
chief general, commander under chief commander of his army under under Saul. So he honors him, and he says, "I'm weak today, though anointed king." And these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So he knows that Joab needs to be dealt in justice. But David, for some reason, never has the ability to pull it off. So on his deathbed, we're told in 1 Kings 2.5, Moreover, you know also... What Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, he's giving instructions to Solomon from his deathbed. This is how you're going to avenge this. He said, what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. So finally, he is going to order the execution of Joab, but not until he is about to die. Now, one thing I want to do before we close out today, uh, tonight, is I want to go back and talk about the importance of Hebron. I want to play a video for you. We've talked about, and I've shown videos in the past from Joel Kramer. Joel Kramer is a uh, Ph.D. archaeology student in, in Israel. Now he's living in Jordan. He's uh, worked with me several times. He took Tommy Ice and Pam and me into uh, Samaria the last time we were in Israel. He's, uh, he, the last time I took a tour group in 2014, he talked to the group, and he's done some good things. But there's a video on the Internet about... Hebron that he did. And I've advanced it, so we're not talking too much about Hebron, but what's, but what's interesting here, this is why it's important for pastors to go to Israel. I wish I could raise a lot of money so that we could take some pastors who don't have the funds to go to Israel because there's things you learn from what you see that you don't learn if you don't see. Case in point, I gave you five points a couple of weeks back on Hebron. I talked about the fact, well, the tomb of the patriarchs really isn't significant in the narrative. Yes, it is. But only if you see it. If you don't understand the geography and topography, you don't realize that it is. So let's listen to what Joel explains here. He is on a knoll, which is near the tell that would have been where the palace of David was when he was king of Hebron. He's going to be looking down across the valley, and you're going to be able to see in about the middle of the, the screen the area where the tomb of the patriarchs is located. Where Joel is standing is where David would stand every morning when he was at his palace. And what's he looking at? He's looking at the tomb of the patriarchs, Abraham and Sarah, Jacob, I mean Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Rachel, Right? No, Jacob and Leah. Why Leah? Because Leah is the mother of Judah. Judah gets the promise that the scepter won't depart from your tribe. David is saying, my great, 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 great grandfather is buried there. And God said, the kings are going to come from him. I'm now the king. It, every day he's reminded this is God's plan for your life. 
You're probably realizing that Hebron is an extra sensitive place, right? And it certainly is. So, um, so there's a lot of history here, and that's what makes it a sensitive place. If there was no history here, if the history wasn't real, nobody would care about this place, and it would be like any other place that nobody cares about. The reason everybody cares and the reason it's so intense is because the history is real and the things really happened. Okay, now, um, let's talk about... Now, I was thinking about what to cover on the way up here. I know that uh, you're probably tired. You're at the end of your trip. There's some middle bronze walls around the corner there. You'll just take my word for it. I think you've seen enough middle bronze walls, haven't you? Okay, so um, up on the Acropolis, which hasn't been excavated of the site up here, somewhere up in here would be the Palace of David from when he ruled from here for seven years, almost seven years. Okay, so before David became, the, the United Kingdom under David happened, he was the king of Judah, and his, this was the capital of Judah, Hebron, and he ruled here. Now you can see, just build his, temple, his uh, palace up there, we don't know exactly where it is, but just build his palace up there and put David in there. And then, uh, he wouldn't have been looking at the building that we're looking at, but uh, he would have been looking at the cave where his forefathers were buried. Okay, and we talked about the cenotaphs down there and how they mark right out the there. lineage of the Messiah. Abraham and Sarah, where were they promised this lineage would come from? We were just there at Mamre, right? That's where the Lord appeared to Abraham and Sarah and said, you're going to have a son. That son is Isaac, who was born to him, whom then Abraham took to Mount Moriah in uh, Jerusalem to sacrifice. The Lord provided a lamb there. And uh, Isaac is buried with his wife, Rebekah, in that burial cave. Then, uh, also buried down there is Jacob, and not Rachel, but Leah, who are the parents of Judah. You're standing in the tribal territory right now, the heart of Judah. Um, who is the uh, famous Judahite king, uh, David. David is from the line of Judah. You have to be from the line of Judah if you're going to be the Messiah. Why? Because of Jacob's blessing to Judah, that the king would come from him, the scepter would come from him, and the royal staff would not depart from his feet. Right. So the king, and that he would rule all nations. The promise to Abraham and Sarah is, hey, your, your child that you're going to have, is going to become a great nation who will bless all the nations of the earth. Hey, uh, the blessing of Jacob to his son Judah is, hey, you're gonna, the kings are going to come from you that will rule over your brothers. And, and this king is going to rule over all the nations of the earth. What an incredible thing to say. Uh, then along comes David, who's got his capital of Judah right here at Hebron looking down on the tomb of the patriarchs. So I decided I'm going to only read you one verse, and it's a very short one, to end our time together today and to end this trip. And I think, I hope, that this verse not only makes a lot of sense of this place and what you're seeing here, 
but I think that it will also make a lot of sense for all that you've seen for the trip. Okay, you ready? This is the verse. It's the very first verse in the New Testament. It's Matthew 1.1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's uh, what the whole Bible is about. It's about what this land is about. It's about what the history of this land is about. And uh, everything that you look at has to do with that. It has to do with what God has done to save us. See, that's a point that I've been making. No matter how much chaos there is, God's in control. After the 70 years of captivity, when Israel thinks everything's lost, they've been taken out of the land, uh, the promised land is in rubble, God tells Jeremiah promise that he's going to keep them out for 70 years, and then he says in Jeremiah 29.10, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. When things look like they're falling apart around us, we have a future and a hope because God's in control. That's what we learned from 2 Samuel chapter 3, is that we can't manipulate things to bring about the results in history that we want. We know a lot of people are into conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theorists are saying, you know, there's all these different groups out there that are trying to control human history. If you're a Christian, you can't believe that because as a Christian, only God controls history. The Club of Rome doesn't control history. You know, the, the whatever different groups you may come up with, uh, they don't control history. There's one group, that one person that controls history, and that is God, and it doesn't matter what any human groups want to do. So the next time you talk to somebody who says, well, there's this conspiracy, there's that conspiracy, say, if you're a Christian... You can't believe any of that garbage. God's the only one who's in control and the only one that matters. So quit talking conspiracy theories and get with the Scripture. God is in control. However chaotic things may be, it's never outside of God's control. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to study today and to be reminded of your care, your goodness, your control, your ability to bring about your purpose, that just as Israel, you have plans of peace and not evil for us as believers. And we have a future and a hope, and so we cannot, dare not, get discouraged by the events around us today, but always focus on you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.